So we sang just a second ago, my heart will sing no other name, Jesus. And again, I ask, is that that true? Because I think even as we sit in church, it's like, yeah, Jesus. And good music. Yeah, Jesus. Friends. Yeah, Jesus. I really need something to feel good about myself. Yeah, Jesus. Plus something else. And we've been singing all the day. No, Jesus. He's enough. Jesus, the only name. Jesus, my vision. Jesus, my everything. That's what we're going to see in this passage. No, it's just Jesus. And Jesus is enough. It's just Jesus. That's everything. And it's more than enough. He's more than enough. So as we're working our way to John chapter 4, I, I want you to kind of follow or get there and follow along with us. Uh, our, our big theme of John is Jesus is the promised Christ and the Son of God who offers eternal life to all who believe. Believe. And he saved, believe, and you will taste and experience the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of his kingdom, right? That's John. He's like, he doesn't want you to just have some facts to base a logical assumption on. He wants you to have facts and experiences and encounters that captivate your heart to grab hold of Jesus and nothing else, to grab hold of Jesus with all that you are. And so that's what he has been walking through. That's what he's been walking through as he turns water into wine. That's what he's been walking through as he encounters religious people like Nicodemus. That's what he's been talking to as he, as he, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it out and says, no, I'm the new temple. That is, is what he's been pressing on as he meets this, this woman beside a well, which we, we talked about last week. And it's, it's also been this story of contrast, right? We've got Nicodemus, the religious, Nicodemus, the man, Nicodemus, the ruler, Nicodemus the moral, Nicodemus the righteous, Nicodemus the one that says, if what you're saying is true, the implications are too big, how could this possibly be true? And then Samaritan the woman, Samaritan the Samaritan, Samaritan the immoral, kind of made a wreck of her life person, the false religion person, the mixed spiritual background person, and yet she drops her Old water for new water. And she runs to declare this Christ to all of her people. Right? There's a very contrasting response between the people we're encountering here. The ones that should get it. The ones that assumed they were in. They had the inner, the, the inside track to the, to the kingdom. Nope. Gotta be born again. And the one that had no hope of a kingdom ever coming to them. The one that had dipped from the well of the world over and over again. Had no hope that anything was going to come to rescue her. That's the one Jesus walked into our life and transformed. And notice how we're going to just, just real quickly go through how Jesus did it. Because I think it's so important that it's worth repeating. Jesus walks into this woman's life and says, I've got a better satisfaction. Like where you have been going for life. Where you've been going for satisfaction. Where you've been going for meaning. Where you've been going for everything to be okay, it's a bucket with a hole in it and it'll never work. But I've got living water. I've got water that I'll plant in you that springs up to eternal life and so that an unending thirst for God will be quenched with an unending, uh, unending spring of his spirit living within you. Is that how you would approach this woman? If you were walking down the street with friends and you ran into a woman 
with a desperately sordid past, where would you start? I don't think we'd start with offering the living water of the beauty and glory of Jesus. We'd start with her sin and Jesus doesn't. And yes, then he graciously turns to her sin to uncover it, to redeem it, to uncover it, to mend what it is broken within her life. And then it ends with worship. The father seeking worshipers, that's you. Right? And so that's how he walks through it. I've got a better satisfaction. Yes, we must deal with your sin because it separates you. And we must deal with your sin because it's broken you. And as I put you back together, I will put you back together as a worshiper of the father who engages him with all that you are. That's the story we're leaving as we come to the story of John chapter 4. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll walk through the story. And so, Father, I pray that living waters would flow out of our hearts. The Holy Spirit's inside of us. God, the Holy Spirit, has made a temple out of us. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells among us as a group. And we as a group are a temple. A holy place. A holy people. And wherever we go today and wherever we go this week, we'll go as a holy place and a holy people. And Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts from Jesus plus something. You'd turn our hearts from looking to Jesus to be something a little less and different than what he is to the song of our heart only being Jesus and no other name and no other addition, only Jesus. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to pick back up the story, as you see in your notes, verse, in verse 39. And it's on the back side of the story we just went through. And it says that many Samaritans believed the word, the testimony of the woman. He told me everything that I ever did. And so they were coming out to Jesus and they begged him. They asked him, stay with us. And so Jesus stayed with them two more days. And many more believed when they, listen to this because it's the key statement of the passage. Many more believed when they heard his word. And then they came to the woman and said, well, it's no longer because of what you told us that we believe. For we've heard him for ourselves. And we know that indeed this is the savior of the world. And after he had stayed with them two days, he departed for Galilee. For he himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his home, in his own hometown. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem in the feast, for they had gone there also. And then he made his way into Cana of Galilee, you know, where he turned the water into wine. And there was an official from Capernaum, a neighboring town near the lake, who came up, who heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, and he, and he heard that. And so he came up and he said, Jesus, please come down with me and heal my son, for he is at the point of death. And I'm going to give you the proper southern translation here. All right? Jesus said to them, Y'all, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. It's a plural statement. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And the man said, Please, come down before my son dies. 
and listen. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. And he went on his way. And as he was headed back down, his servants were coming up and they met him and said, your, your son, he's recovering. And the man asked, when did he begin to get better? And his servant said, yesterday at about the seventh hour, that's when his fever left him. And the father knew. The father knew. That was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed. Along with all his household. This is the second sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So let's walk through this story because it's, it's meant to be one of these bridge stories that takes us from one section to another section. But this story especially is meant to seam up what has been going on since chapter two, right? Chapter two, the water into wine was the first sign. Chapter four, we end with, it's the second sign. He's tying these things together. He wants us to view all of chapter two and all of chapter three and all of chapter four as a unit because he's using this unit to say something. And he's using it to say a lot about contrast. And so he's talking about faith throughout this, right? In the first sign, the servants knew that Jesus had turned water into wine. But it doesn't say they believed. It doesn't say anything about them. But at the end of that section, this sign was to display the glory of Jesus. And his disciples saw it. And his disciples believed. Right? The point was faith. And so Jesus is this better purification by his blood, not water pots. And Jesus opens up the banquet of the kingdom of God to people as the messianic age has come. The Messiah is here. Come feast at the table of Jesus. And it's a better feast than any feast this world offers. I have a better wine for you, a better celebration for you. The disciples saw it and believed. And then he wraps up in the background. The point of the story is faith, but the background of the story, just like it has been all along, is what matters. Jesus walks into the jaws of death and he snatches life back out. That's what the kingdom does. Is it walks into the realm of death and brings life. It walks into dead hearts and brings life in its place. It walks into those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and says life over death. And that's the background of this story of faith, this contrasting story of faith. And so look at this. Many Samaritans in that town believed because of the woman's testimony. Now, in Christian terms, we're thinking testimony. You know, I share my story of how I came to faith in Christ. That is not what it's talking about here. This is, instead of thinking more of your personal story of faith, think in terms of a courtroom. Right? And so when they heard this woman's testifying, this woman's witnessing, this woman called to a stand to declare something, when they heard that, many of them believed. Right? And that's been a big concern of John, is witness and testimony, witness and testimony, witness and testimony. So if he's going to use that word about this woman, think about what it means. Now, here's the woman's background if you weren't here last week. I don't have a husband. You're so right about that. You've had five. And not only have you had five husbands and gotten rid of five husbands or five husbands gotten rid of you or some mixture of the two, you're currently living with your boyfriend that's not your husband. And that's the woman who is standing in the court of testimony saying, he told me everything I ever did. And they believed. And not only that, it's a woman. A woman's testimony in this period of time was not valid in a court of law. And yet that's who it is. An ordinary person 
a less than ordinary person declaring an extraordinary Jesus can transform lives. What does that mean about you? Well, I'm not that polished. I don't speak that well. I stutter. I stammer. Anytime I start talking about the gospel, man, I get all backwards and turned around. This woman's been a Christian for five seconds. She knows less at the end of her encounter with Jesus about Jesus than you're going to know at the end of this sermon. She has a background that ain't cleaned up yet. And she's going back to exactly the place she just left, you know, 30 minutes ago to go get some water. And she's going back to that place as that same person with that same reputation. And she is not polished. But she's a witness. And she can say there's an extraordinary Jesus. There's a Christ that's on the scene. And he's told me everything that I've ever done. And he can save you and he can change your life. If she can declare it. The point I think that's being drawn out of this is you can declare it. But I don't know how to answer all the questions. If these people had pressed her for an answer about Jesus, what can she tell them? Well, he said something about living water. I'm not sure I understood that yet. And then he told me everything I'd ever done. He told me about my sin and uncovered my sin and I never told him what that sin was. And then he talked about worship. Like This is the extent of her experience with Jesus. And it doesn't matter can she answer the questions, Right? It doesn't matter, but we know where you come from, lady. It matters that Jesus was the object of the message. And it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be polished. It has to be a heart of love for Jesus and a heart of love for people that offer Jesus to people. And so, many in the town believed because of the woman's testimony. And so when they had heard this testimony, right? They've heard, he told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? When they heard that, they flocked out to Jesus. And they begged him to stay. And I want you to think about the contrasting responses. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and cleanses out a temple. And it's like, who do you think you are? Give me your credentials. It's not, oh man, somebody, God has sent somebody and my heart needs to be ready for it. It's like, who do you think you are? And then Nicodemus. Like Nicodemus encounters Jesus and he has so bought into the system of his own righteousness that he can't possibly consider that his righteousness is not enough to encounter God and to taste God's kingdom. And he can't possibly comprehend that he's not on the inside. And so half not getting it and half with total incredulity. That's a big word, but I can't think of how to translate it. Sorry. How can this possibly be true? Is Nicodemus's last statement to Jesus. And you think about the difference between that and this woman who has no claim to hear Jesus, yet Jesus sought her out. And the Samaritans. Do you know who the Samaritans are? Now, please hear this because I, I do not want this to come across wrong. But this is the nature of what we're dealing with. The Samaritans were a mixed group of people. Now, that is not an eth- ethnic statement. It is a spiritual statement. They were a spiritually mixed people. And here's how it's been from the beginning of the Bible, and it is just as true today, so don't miss it. God's people only have intimate relationships with God's people. God's people only, listen to this, marry God's people. It has never been okay in the history of God's dealing with humanity, from even back to um, Adam and Eve and Cain. It has never been okay for God's people to establish deeply woven intimate partnerships with each other or marriage with each other that are not part of God's people. That's the point of the Samaritans. 
is you've got one foot in the Jewish world mixed with an, with, a, with the Gentiles that have been brought in from all the different nations. It's not really an ethnic statement. So you've got God's people, the Jewish people remaining in the land, and the Gentiles who mixed together their religion and mixed together their lines. And God's people weren't just with God's people anymore. So that's why the Jews hated and despised them. So think about for the Jewish reader how it would gall them. Nicodemus just walked away. They kicked him out of the temple. Not quite, but kind of. But the Samaritans was even talking to them. The Samaritans. And they're coming to Jesus to beg him to stick around. I can't find any of the Jewish people in John that want him to stick around very long. And yet the Samaritans come and are like, please stay, stick around. And then look at this, because this is the key verse that flows through, uh, the key word that flows through the text. You got to see it. Many be more believed because of his word. What is the great indictment of John? They believed because they saw the signs. They believed because of the miracle. Now that's an indictment on us too. Like, I believe because Jesus offers this great thing called community with his people. I believe because Jesus is going to make me feel good about myself. I believe because Jesus' version of self-esteem is great. They believed because of his word. There is zero record that Jesus did any miracles or signs among the Samaritans at this point. Not, not ever. There's not a mention of signs. There's not a, one detailed for us. They had the word of Jesus and the word of Jesus is what they believed. No other stuff dumped in, no other things mixed in, no other motives. Just God, we've heard Jesus talk. We've heard the word made flesh dwelling among us, beholding the glory of God. Like we've seen that and we believed. Now that's such an essential point because it serves as the backdrop for the rest of the passage. It serves as the backdrop to confront the people he is about to go and encounter. And so they believe the word. And then they went to the woman, and look, I don't think they're running down the lady here at this point. Like, we no longer believe because of what you said. I would say we no longer believe just because of what you said, is what I would think is how it's being communicated. Like, your word got us here, your word we believed it, but now we've heard for ourselves. We've heard Jesus speak now. An ordinary woman declared an extraordinary Jesus, now the extraordinary Jesus is declaring an extraordinary Jesus. And like, we believe, and then look at their declaration. He's the savior of the world. Now, for, for, for Christians in 2019, that's a pretty normal statement, right? Yeah, Jesus is the savior of the world. Do you know it only appears in the New Testament two times? It's not a normal name for Jesus. It's not a normal title. It appears here and it appears in 1 John chapter 4. But think about who's making the statement. The spiritually mixed Samaritans are the first to pull together the strings of John to title him the Savior of the world. Those with one foot in the Jewish background and the Jewish lineage and one foot in the Gentile world background and world lineage. And their declaration is he is the Savior of the world. And they make it with that background to people of your background. He's not a limited Savior to the Jewish nation. 
He is a universal savior to you wherever you come from, whatever background you come from, whatever family you come from, whatever personal experiences and personal decisions and personal consequences you're living on. He is the savior of all the world, meaning all the world's peoples and backgrounds and people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will be before the throne one day. Like that. He's that savior. And this pulls together John, because remember how we're introduced to Jesus and John. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then as Nicodemus and Jesus are talking, what does he say? For God so loved the world. He's not talking about the dirt you walk around on. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then what's the very next verse? He didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son so that the world through him might be saved. And so the Samaritans are pulling all that together to say, he is indeed the savior of the world. We've heard him. We know it's true. We've believed it. And then he goes on after two days and he departs for Galilee. So he started out from Judea in the first part of chapter four. To get to Galilee, so Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And so he continues and he finishes out his journey to Galilee. But then he makes a very weird statement, doesn't he? And this is probably the most debated statement in all of this passage. So he's going on to Galilee and he says, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So it's debated on every level. First, like, well, what's his hometown? Because he's Jesus of Nazareth and Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere in the passage. So like, what do you mean? Where's your hometown? And the second problem is, what do you mean by you have no honor? Right? He's going and they welcome him. It's just short of a parade when he shows up into town. The Galileans welcomed him into their community. What do you mean you don't have any honor? Now, why I think it matters and why I'm going to spend time on it in the sermon is because I think it is exactly part of the point that he's trying to make. And so when we talk about what is Jesus' hometown, well, according to chapter 1, he came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. Who were they? The Jewish people. So Jesus' hometown is Israel. It's Judea and Galilee, these primary, primarily Israelite areas. And so he came to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people had no honor for Jesus. And so if you go back, as we've already done, if you go back to, to Jesus in Jerusalem at the feast talking about the temple, there's a lot of suspicion and a lot of like, who do you think you are? You don't fit our agenda. You don't fit our plans. You need to prove yourself before we'll examine ourselves. And then Nicodemus, right? He wasn't hostile to Jesus, but it was kind of like, it is too much for me to give up to embrace this born again thing and enter the kingdom. It's too much. I have too much at stake in the life that, that I have with my background and my job and my title in the nation. I can't give all that up for what you're saying. But then the implication, if you look at the beginning of chapter four, when he gets on the radar of the Pharisees, Something about being on the radar of the Pharisees because he's making all these disciples creates the pressure that forces him to leave the area. Right? And so here's how Jesus is received by his own people. Suspicion, doubt, prove yourself. And then he walks through Samaria. And how is he greeted? Oh, we love you. Would you stick around? You speak and we believe. But then that doesn't answer the rest of the question. The rest of the question is this. Or he keeps him going. What do you mean by no honor? He shows up in Galilee and what do they do? They welcome him. But read the rest of the story. Right? Because in John chapter 2, we had the same kind of verse happen. 
When they saw the signs, they believed, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. The Galileans welcomed him. Seeing what he had done, read signs, seeing the miracles that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Why are they welcoming Jesus? For what they can get out of Jesus. Why are they welcoming Jesus? We want to see a parlor trick. Why are they welcoming Jesus? Do some miracles. Why are they welcoming Jesus? Let's get some people healed here. And so they're not coming to Jesus for Jesus. They're coming to Jesus for the stuff Jesus can give them. And how often is that us? I think that's like the major indictment of my heart as I study this passage. Like, I come to Jesus and I, yes, I love Jesus and I want Jesus. But what else do I want with it? Inner peace. Right? Our, our gospel booklets are like steps to peace with God. Like, how can I get peace? Yeah, so I want Jesus because he gives me this peace stuff. Which means I don't want Jesus, I want what Jesus gives me. Or I come to Jesus and, you know, I just I feel so bad about myself and I feel so guilty and I feel so ashamed. And so I want Jesus so that shame goes away. I want Jesus so that I feel good about myself. And that's why the Galileans welcome Jesus. There's no honor for Jesus when you want him for what he can give you and you don't want him because of who he is. There's no honor for Jesus when it's like, give me the goodies. There's honor for Jesus when you say, I want you. I want your word. I believe you. I believe your word. Nothing else matters. Here's the great gift of the gospel. You ready? Jesus. We go to Jesus to get Jesus. And if we get Jesus, we have everything. Now, that's not to say that an intimate relationship with Jesus doesn't redefine my identity. It does. But if I go for my identity, then it'll go bad on me. It doesn't mean when I go to Jesus that he does not remove the guilt and stain of my life that separates me from God. He does. But it means I'm not going to Jesus to get that. I'm going to Jesus to get Jesus. And the side effect is... See, we make the side effect the primary thing instead of the secondary thing. They welcomed him because he, they'd seen what he did. And I, the reason I think that interpretation is right is because that's the story that follows, right? Unless y'all see, y'all won't believe. And so I think the, the passage is made, the story is made to say that. And so here comes the specific thing. So he came again to Cana of Galilee. And John is making a very intentional point. That's for emphasis sake. Are y'all hearing it or am I just hearing things? Okay. All right. Are y'all really hearing it? Because if I'm hearing things, there may be another problem. <laughs> okay. This passage in John chapter 4. And so he... All right. We're at the place. And then he reminds you, in case you forgot over the last two chapters, water got turned into wine there. So he's tying us back to that miracle. Why? There's this better purification in the blood of Jesus. There's this better satisfaction in the wine of Jesus. There's this better party and better celebration at the table of Jesus. And when people come to the table of Jesus, they find that life replaces death. And faith weaves it all back together again. And so Cana of Galilee, they're there. He turned the water into wine. And then comes this guy from Capernaum, which is a neighboring town that is on kind of the lakeside. And so it's low and everything else is high. That's why it's, he came up. They want to go down, right? And so 
He comes to Jesus. He's like, okay, Jesus has come from, I've heard that he's come back from Galilee and I've heard all these stories about the things he did at the feast. And, and so I know he can help my son. I don't care if he's the Christ. I don't care if he's the son of God. I don't care if the Jewish people like him. I don't care if the Jewish people don't like him. I have a son that's going to die and I don't care anything else about it. That this guy can help. Nobody else can help. And so I'm coming to Jesus. And so he makes the trip to Jesus to say, please come heal my son. He's about to die. And he makes that statement and Jesus rebukes him. He confronts him. And so he, he, he confronts this man, yes, which may seem ungracious, but there's a point. But he also confronts the Galileans. You want me here for no other reason than the miracles that I do. And he confronts this man on the same thing. All you care about. But then look at the words he uses. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So your seeing signs is attached to your believing in the Messiah. That will not do. And he has to confront it. It's gracious to confront that because if you want Jesus for any other reason than Jesus, it's not the faith that will save you and transform you and plant you in his kingdom and give you eternity. And so he has to confront that. He has to uncover that because all these mixed motives will will keep you one step away from salvation, which is an eternally large step. And so he has to confront it. It's Jesus. It's nothing else. And he confronts it in the man and he confronts it in the community. But what we find out is the community stays the way it is, but the man is transformed. And so look as the story goes on. He's like, I don't really care. You can rebuke me. You can shame me. I can be demeaned. Doesn't matter to me a bit. Please come heal my son because he's about to die. And we get that, dads and moms, right? If I have to be ashamed, I'll be ashamed. If I have to beg, I'll beg. If I have to give up everything I own to keep my child from dying, nothing else matters. And that's the plea that he has with Jesus. So shame me. You're right. I'm guilty. But heal my son, please. Have compassion on my son, please. And Jesus confronts, but he also has compassion. And look how he, how he does it. Go. Your son will live. And now look at the change that happens within this man. Unless you see, you won't believe. Jesus says, go, it's going to happen. Does he see it happen? No. Does he know for a fact the miracle is confirmed and his son will live? No. He believes the word of Jesus at this point. And that's a huge step away from, unless you see, you believe. I don't see, but you've just spoken. And I believe the words you've spoken. And that's what John's uncovering for us. Right? And so the man leaves. Now that's faith. It's like, yeah, that's so good, Jesus. Come on anyways. Let's just make sure. Why don't you come down to Capernaum anyways and let's make sure my son's going to be okay. And then look, I'll feed you lunch and you can go on your way. No. He believed the word of Jesus, acted on the word of Jesus and goes back home believing the fact that his son's going to live. And he goes back down and his servants meet him as he comes up and they're like, he's fine. He's recovered. And he's like, when did this happen? When did, when did all this take place? And he's like, they were like, yesterday. One o'clock p.m., the seventh hour. And this is when it all comes together in this man's life and it transforms him. He knew that was the moment that Jesus said, your son will live. And he himself believed with all his household. Do you see the progression? Unless you see, you will not believe. He believed the word of Jesus and left. And now, 
having encountered not just the miracle of a son being healed, but the sign that points beyond it to Jesus snatching life out of death and can snatch the, the death out of his own soul and put life in its place and the death out of his family's soul and put life in its place. He believes that. And no longer is it just about the miracle. It's about Jesus. No longer is it, I don't care if he's the Messiah, the Son of God. He believes in Jesus. And so it's not to say that signs are not attached to faith. It's not to say that Jesus' miracles are not beautiful things that unlock a vision of Jesus. It's to say if you trust the sign, Jesus the sign doer, and not just Jesus, it's not genuine faith. It's not saving faith. Or Jesus the counselor, or Jesus the community builder, or Jesus the cause expert. It's not to say that all those things can't be beautiful. It's to say if it's not Jesus, but Jesus plus something, it's not genuine faith. And so this man believes, and this is the second sign. This is the tying together of the story that took him to declaring a banquet for people to come to. To going into Jerusalem to become the new temple. To going to Nicodemus to say that even the most righteous human being, his righteousness will be like filthy rags. And he has to be born again to see the kingdom. To coming to the Samaritan woman as he begins his trek back up to Galilee where it all started. To say, no, you can have living water too. You can be redeemed too. You can be made whole too. And a whole group of Samaritans believing. And now it ends with a father seeing the same thing the disciples saw in chapter 2. Seeing the glory of Jesus, seeing that Jesus is enough, believing because of the miracle that he did. Believing in Jesus, not the miracle. So I'm going to just fill in the outline for you. Don't worry, we're not going to re-preach the sermon. Jesus demands nothing less than genuine faith. The nature of this story is meant to uncover what our faith really is in and what our faith is really about. What is your faith in? What is your faith really about? And if Jesus isn't the only answer, Jesus exclamation point, it will go bad on you. But if it is Jesus exclamation point, you will taste the kingdom. You will live an eternal kind of life and you will walk out of this life into an eternal life. So the first part, Jesus is followed because of his word, not welcomed because of his blessings. Jesus is followed because of his word, not welcomed because of his blessings. I'll just give you one story that kind of illustrates this point since we've already gone through the text. So when we were looking for Wade, we posted the job all over the place. So SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Georgia Baptist Convention, several uh, gospel organizations that we trust, seminaries. But I follow this worship leader blog. And I was like, this guy's pretty sharp. He's pretty solid. I'm going to just reach out to him. You know, I know these famous people. They, they probably don't have time for me, but who knows? I'll send him an email. And guess what? That guy emailed me back. And it was like this super friendly email. I was like, man, this is a brother in Christ. Like, he really wants to serve people and serve the church. What a blessing. And so we started emailing back and forth. And he's like, hey, you know what? We could, we could just set up a time to talk. Why don't we just talk on the phone? I'm like thinking, wow, that is so above and beyond. I know you're busy. Like, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. A couple emails later, I find out why he's being so friendly. He's a consultant that helps churches find worship leaders. And for the low, low price of $20,000, I'm dead serious. He will walk us through the process of finding the right applicants and screening the right applicants all the way to the point of hire. It's a rotten feeling, isn't it? It's a rotten feeling when you're like, 
man, this guy's nice. This, guy's, this, this girl's nice. They're great. It's a rotten feeling when you realize they're only being nice to me because they want something from me. Have you ever had that happen? That stinks. I just was so crushed by the thought of like, is that me though? I'm just a lot of, I'm, I'm extra nice to Jesus when I want something. I'm extra nice to Jesus when I want the job or the promotion. I'm extra nice to Jesus when I want the blessing. I'm extra nice to Jesus when I want a good outcome. Now that's not to say that like hard stuff in life isn't meant to drive us to Jesus. I'm saying it's like when, when it's like maybe I could butter Jesus up and rub the genie lamp the right way and Jesus will give me goodies. Well, being like the omnipotent God of the universe, he knows that you're only being nice to him to get something from him. And it's an awful feeling. Jesus is followed because of his word. And yes, does all this goodness come from him? Yes. How can he who gave us his son not freely give us all things with him? Like who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. That's so true. But it's such a small step to go from that to, but I really want this out of him and that's why I'm going to go. Second step is this. Jesus is confrontational and compassionate with those of less than pure faith. Jesus is confrontational and compassionate with those of less than pure faith. And again, we've already hit it, but there's this great combination within Jesus to say, look, I'm going to crush the false things of your faith that are going to keep you from me and keep you from goodness. And then how graciously does he step into what's left behind and say, but I'm still going to walk in here and mend what's broken. And so Jesus has this beautiful combination of I'm going to confront what's wrong and I'm going to lavish compassion over the top of what's really there. And that's what you see playing out in this man's life. Like, dude, you only are coming to me to get my healing. And the guy's like, yeah. But then he compassionately gives it to him and walks him to a transforming faith in the process. And he'll do the same for you. What is Jesus pressing on in your heart at this moment to say, yeah, I want Jesus, but I also want this. Yeah, Jesus plus. Yeah, Jesus, the good counselor. Yeah, Jesus plus the good physician. Yeah, Jesus plus the self-esteem builder. Yeah, Jesus plus the shame lifter. Yeah, Jesus plus the one who blesses and gives positive outcomes for my business. And what are the areas of your life where it's, yes, Jesus He's great, but man, I really want something else too. He is gracious enough to shatter that in your life. But then he's also gracious enough to mend every piece that's broken in the process to make it better. The last step, Jesus accepts faith that is not anchored in what we see or what we get. Jesus accepts faith that's not anchored in what we see or what we get. I think we've kind of already made that point, so we don't have to go into it anymore. Is my faith in Jesus, or is it my faith in what I can see and what I can get out of the deal? So let's hear a few practical things as we wrap up. God can use your witness. Like That woman's life should shout to you, God can use your witness. I don't know enough, so what? I stumble with my words, so what? When I go back home, they know the hooligan I used to be. When I go back home, my parents know, and they even see me jump all over my brother still. 
When I go back home, they know me. So? You're not asking them to know you. You're asking them to know Jesus. You're not asking them to see how good you are. You're asking them to see how good Jesus is. And yes, should he change your life? And yes, should he sanctify? Yeah, for the rest of your life. But don't let your personal insecurities, your personal fears, or your personal lack of knowledge in your own mind stop you from declaring him. Your witness can be used. If you will love people and love Jesus and just share him, he doesn't need any of the rest out of you. God can use your witness. Second, seek Jesus, not the goodies. Like, do you really want to know Jesus? Are you really driving to the heart of Jesus? Are you seeking the face of Jesus? Are you meditating on Jesus? Are you walking through this gospel thinking, wow, Jesus would take two days of a three-year ministry and sit down with a bunch of Samaritans. Like, they have no claim on the deal. And neither do you. And neither do I. Are you stunned and amazed that Jesus would sit around and talk to people like you? Because that's exactly why you're saved. Is that the God of the universe would sit around and talk to you. Through a person, through a preacher, through a Sunday school teacher. He would say, here's my son and here's my life. God would sit down and talk to you. Like knowing me, it's shocking. In a good way. Do you sit down in that? Do you soak yourself in that truth? Do you meditate on that truth so that the goodness of Jesus fills up your heart and pours out of your heart into others? Seek Jesus because he's so much better than 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 the goodies. Like if you have Jesus and nothing else, he's enough. If you have Jesus and nothing else, you have what can never be lost. The last step, be compassionate and confrontational. Do you love people enough to care about what hurts them? Do you love people enough to care about the baggage they carry around in their lives from their past and from their choices? Do you love people enough to care about the consequences of their own choices that they're living in? Because for me, I'm like, dude, you made the bed, lie in it. If you weren't, you know, if you didn't do stupid stuff, you wouldn't have all these problems in your life. Do I care enough to sit beside people and say, yeah, your life's a mess and and you've made a mess and I care. And I care not in a way that dumps judgment on you, but I care in a way that let's 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 see what we can do to keep walking. But also, do I care enough about people to confront them? Jesus cared enough to confront and he cared enough to mend. And I think that's a great model for who we're intended to be. And so Jesus is looking for genuine faith. Is your faith in Jesus? Is your faith in what you can get from Jesus? Let's pray. Father.